Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now, in one way or another on this programme, we talk quite a lot about tradition and traditions, usually in a particular context, which is that they are all going or that they are under attack. But what actually is tradition and why is it important? Now, my guest today has just written a book right about this, Whatever Happened to Tradition, which comes out this week. Tim Stanley is an author and historian. He's also a columnist for The Telegraph and leader writer for The Telegraph. Thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Tim, thank you. Um, this, whatever happened to tradition, when you see this in the shop, mm. I can think a lot of our viewers will probably immediately want to buy it. Mm -hmm. um, because the implication is that, in fact, it's going or gone. But first of all, what is it? Well, when we say the word tradition, we are referring to something being passed down. That's the very simplest definition of it. It is something old that we are curating that we hope to pass on to someone else. Um, but I'd say there are lots of things that could be mistaken for tradition, but sometimes really we're talking in those cases about fashions, fads, customs or rituals, etc., etc. Mm -hmm. So if you want a sense of what a tradition is, I say it has a sort of three-part taste test. One, it plugs the individual into a sense of community. Uh, second, um, it gives you what, I, what is called by Roger Scruton social knowledge. It gives you a language to describe things. And thirdly, it has a remarkable effect upon time itself so that it connects you to the past. So to take a tradition that does all of those things, you might say the monarchy. Uh, the monarchy is part of a wider community. The monarchy sits at the head of the nation. So there you are, it's plugging the individual into a sense of being part of something. Uh, it has uh, social knowledge because it, it teaches you how to behave, how to speak to people. It has a language, it has uh, ritual, it, it has a whole custom to it and uh, an art and a culture to it. And finally, it, it, does, it has this effect upon time because the monarch, of course, their badge of honour is timelessness or the appearance of timelessness. So a monarch claims their authority from the fact that they are descended from other monarchs and they stretch back and back and back into ages long since forgotten. So tradition is at once something very, very simple, passing things on, but the way of testing whether or not something really is a tradition is if it has this depth and if it has this uh, sort of um, this significance to it. Well, actually, it's interesting because if you take that old de definition of people who came before, you say, us and the people yet to be born, mm. uh, the monarchy is almost the embodiment of that, isn't it? Because yes. we see it actually happening. But what's interesting about, you use the example mostly, I think it's, it seems a very, very good one, is that a lot of the tradition around it is in fact quite modern. Exactly, yes. Yeah. And that's one of the things about tradition. The more you get into it, and this is where I hope the book will surprise people, uh, and I found this when I really got into the subject. I thought I'd just be defending old things. Uh, but actually, when you look into it, you realize a lot of those old things are contemporary innovations. Mm. Um, and the question which historians and thinkers have batted back and forth for a good hundred years or so is, does that make them artificial? Is the fact that some of these things are fairly new, certain ceremonies, certain forms with the monarchy. The modern monarchy, its look is sort of 19th century, essentially. Mm. That's when a lot of what the monarchy does now was established and formalized. Does that make it false or artificial? Well, I would say not, because it's building on what came before. Even that which is an innovation is an attempt to restore or stay true to the sense of what there was before. So even when you're innovating a tradition, mm. you're still engaging with a tradition 
adding something to it. Traditions do not stay the same all the time and look the same all the time. They evolve, they develop, they add things on, and crucially they interact with other traditions and they are changed by them. So the monarchy has been transformed by democracy and by the experience of democracy. Mm -hmm. And um, paradoxically, uh, the monarchy actually, during the 19th century with the expansion of the franchise, the monarchy went more on display, became mm. grander, mm. Um, and developed much of the air of an imperial throne during that period of democratization in order partly to sell itself to the new democratic polity. Mm -hmm. So a good healthy tradition can always sense the way the winds are moving, mm. adapt and appeal and remain relevant to that uh, changing socioeconomic circumstance. Yes, I think some of the ceremonies that we now take for granted, trooping the colour, it, oh, it's been going for years. Well, actually not that, I mean, mm. you know, it has been, but it originated as being the monarch's real birthday, I believe. And the state opening of parliament as well, with all the paraphernalia, the, again, a relatively new thing. But I, I, I would have thought that the, uh, what, what is particularly um, important to, in, in the context of your, what we're talking about is the investiture of Prince Charles, which was sort of just sort of, you know, I think the last one was a century before, wasn't right. it? But that had the first that one, which was some archaic ceremony in in Carnarvon Castle. Um, there hadn't been one for about eight hundred years. Right. I think it was, just, right. it was just resurrected. Right. Right. And you said at the beginning, uh, many people will buy this because they think tradition's going. That's a classic example of it being restored. Mm. And what I find so interesting is that, uh, especially if you look back since the since the Industrial Revolution, at periods of great economic and social change, that's when you see restoration. Yeah. And not just in this country. So I write a great deal in the book about Meiji Japan, uh, which in the late 19th century, uh, when it was forced to open up to the rest of the world, essentially because the Americans gave it um, uh, gave it a, a no option to. Um, what is it, an offer it couldn't refuse. Uh, Japan did open it up, but it tried to do it on its own terms by reviving a sense of Japanese-ness, mm. and much of which today is taken for granted as being innate to Japan and timeless about Japan. It's actually a 19th century invention or a 19th century rediscovery of that which came before. Uh, you mentioned there that you, you know, there is this sort of fear that we're losing traditions. I mean, this is presumably one of the reasons that you've done this book, because yeah. um, you say that the problem we have in the West is that one of our traditions is to discard tradition, yes. right? But, I mean, I would have to say, Tim, I said, so who is this we? You know, because the fact is you've got a vast majority of people, a lot of people who actually have no problem with all sorts of traditions. But, yeah. So who is it that's doing the discarding? Okay, so it, it, it would be easy just to say it is the liberal elite, but actually I think genuinely it's woven into the DNA. Uh, those changes that one tends to think of, since, especially since the 1960s, social and cultural change, they could not have happened unless people went along with them. Mm. So I think it's part of our DNA to embrace change and to be sceptical of the old and the traditional. Um, so I, I, I don't think it is just the liberal elite doing it. I think it's us as well. It, as I say, it's, it's been woven into our identity really since the Enlightenment um, and since the birth the rebirth of the individual post-Renaissance, since that, that sent that you get this uh, extraordinary explosion of scepticism, which happens to tie in with scientific and industrial change and also Darwin with the rise of atheism, etc. Uh, the West begins to become very critical of itself. And I think that has seeped into the wider culture. We do like change and innovation. Hey, they're not bad things. The problem is we very often throw out the baby with the bathwater. Yes. Is this something peculiar to the West, you think? I mean, because this, your book, I should add, really goes right around the world. Yes. 
Yes. And so is it, is it peculiar to the world? I think it is. Um, although having said that, other parts of the world have certainly imported it and have begun to imitate it. And it might just be that there are limits to my knowledge where I, I don't appreciate there are other cultures which are much like this. But certainly when I was trying to find examples of other way of living, it was very easy to go to other cultures and find places where people try to root progress and change in a sense of the traditional. Uh, which we, we do do here, but as I say, I think there's still this overriding sense that the past, bad place, future, exciting, yeah. and let's live as much in the present as possible. And when you do have a culture which is focused so strongly upon the present and upon satisfying present desire, um, you inevitably turn yourself against tradition because it holds you back. Anything which seems like an inherited restraint, anything which is an unreasonable thing that you're doing simply because it's what people did before you, we're sort of primed in the West to be sceptical of that. Mm. And other cultures definitely aren't like that. No. I mean, who... Can you pick one out that you, to, to describe to us? I mean, well, I, gave the I give the example in the book of Aboriginal Australian culture, mm. uh, which I find absolutely fascinating, um, which has been sort of forced into progress uh, by the Western presence. And one element of, uh, of Australian Aboriginal culture I find particularly interesting is the concept of the dreaming. We have this idea in the West that land is a commodity, uh, that it's simply something you do with. It's a physical yeah. environment you do things with and you can trade it and, and grow things on it, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, for the Aboriginal Australian, uh, the land is perpetuated, it, the, the land is populated in perpetuity by ghosts of the past. The present is present in, the, the, the past is present now. Mm. Um, and it is actually possible to walk among the past through something they call the dreaming, which is very difficult to uh, describe. Um, but essentially it means that not only, that not only when one remembers one is thinking back, but one is actually reliving. Yes. Um, and and I, I find that relationship to the past, that emotional bond to the past, really very powerful. And one consequence of it is it makes one less focused upon the ego. Because when it comes to remembering what is important, when it comes to defining the present, these things are defined by the community, not necessarily by the individual. So your life might be dominated by memories of a great battle, a great hunt that took, part, took, centuries, took place centuries ago, but through the dreaming is still taking place now and is still relevant to your life right now. So you have people who have an, almost like an umbilical cord to history and to the past. Mm. And thus, whatever progress they make, and they will make it and they do make it, they never lose that sense of who they were and therefore who they are now. And that tradition is actually, it is tied to landscape and to physical places, but it's also portable, uh, which means that no matter where you are thrown, no matter what happens to you, even if you wander across the planet, you don't lose your sense yes. of yourself and where you've come from. So, in other words, this is a, a, this is a spiritual context, really, yes. in a way. I mean, this is a problem for us, isn't it? Because we have sort of jettisoned, or at least the, this we we're talking about, mm. uh, religion a lot of the West um, and this therefore we no longer have a context in this way we no longer we sort of almost as you say reject this sort of context from the past you know? yeah is this because we sort of feel that we are so damn special as individuals <laughs> I mean you know that yes you know do you, do you find that any kind of context is is going to take away a bit from the individual isn't it yeah, absolutely. And it's going to limit our choices. And, and it, it's partly a human instinct, but it's a very now 
21st century Western instinct to not want to have any limitations on what you might do in the future. That is seen as a bad thing. And I feel it in my own life as well. I struggle to make commitments to things because I'm always thinking mm. two or three weeks in advance, how is that going to stop me from doing something? Mm. I mean, a, a classic example is relationships with parents and with the family. And in most non-Western societies, um, you don't really ever leave your family. And that your attitude is they looked after me, I look after them. And you defer to your elders, uh, mm. even if they go a bit gaga and they don't really know what they're doing anymore. You still respect them because mm. they are mum and dad. Um, here, it's seen as babyish or adolescent to still be living with your parents, although for an entire generation, it's because of house prices, it's become yeah. a reality. Yeah. Uh, but, but that is seen as a psychological failing among many people. Um, and I, I think that's an example of, of a very sad consequence of, mm. of that kind of rugged individualism. Mm. Um, and, it's, and, it, and again, it's a, it's a post-industrial revolution. We weren't necessarily like that. Before then, when we lived in, the, when we lived in rural areas uh, where we were still, our lives were still dominated by the customs and rituals of the church and the landscape, we tended to rely upon kinship networks, which weren't yes. just family, but were also extended family and friends to help raise children. We didn't just think it was just us against the world. This is an interesting uh, point, really, Tim, because, like, for example, I live in London. I don't know. Do you live in Lon London? No, I do not. I got out as soon as I could. <laughs> oh, well, well, I am about to leave. Anyway, that's a different story. I, I live in London, and it's sort of struck me um, how people in London, and I guess in places like New York or whatever, sort of reject neighbourliness. Uh, people say, oh, it's because, you know, everyone's rushing about, but I actually don't think that it's almost like the context is, is too provincial for them. It's, yeah. too, it's, it's going to lessen yes. their great yeah. sort of creative individuality. Yes, or, you know, and I, I, look, it, it might seem a bit easy to say that's the Enlightenment speaking. Um, and of course, it's not just, but that is a theme of the Enlightenment. The idea that um, the thing you want to be is a man of the world, yeah. someone who can travel, go to any part of the world ever, connect with people, share ideas, and through the constant testing of ideas, improve yourself and improve uh, human, the, the human condition, mm. which is a very valiant ideal. Who wouldn't think that's a good thing, the, the classic anywheres ethic? Mm. Um, the problem with that is the flip side, is that it, during the Enlightenment, you begin to see the trashing of the local. Because the flip side of that is that if your willingness to travel and meet people is a good thing, then the desire to stay put is a bad thing, especially if you desire to stay put in a tiny village where you only speak to people who know your own language and have your own experiences and your own religion. Well, that, that's almost like an individual failing. So mm -hmm. rootedness to place over time in the West starts to become regarded with suspicion. Yes. Um, and I, I do think it's a legacy of that attitude. Yes. You mentioned the Enlightenment. I mean, I, I, one could also say that it was, you know, if, if one's going to be much more current, uh, you could say that it's like a strange uh, alliance between the economic individualism of Thatcherism yes. and the sort of 60s, yes. I'm going to do what I want, you know, let it all hang out thing, come yeah. together in a sort of way. Well, as the Brexit people have started to notice at last, um, this social liberalism is also economically productive. The willingness of people to leave home and go in search of work, to work very low wages and to go very far to do it, happens to help business. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so if you can dress up something that happens to be to the advantage of the capitalist system by saying it's also jolly progressive and enlightened, mm. well, then that's a magic formula. Mm. So and, and the Brexit people have started to notice this. Many conservatives... When you say who, the Brexit people, you mean... Uh... I, I mean Tory Brexiteers mm. who hitherto were free trade, 
pro-Thatcher Brexiteers who wanted Brexit in order to leave the EU to become like Singapore on Thames, etc. Mm. I think those people have started, they, they, first of all, they've inherited a, con a constituency by accident mm. of working class ex-Labour voters who've got a very different worldview and a very different set of needs. But I think when they saw how much business pushed back against Brexit, they started to put two and two together and realised that actually... Um, it's possible that this Thatcherite model is really about making money. Mm, <laughs> it's mm. not necessarily about helping mm. man's soul. Mm. And I, I always think a turning point in the Brexit debate was when Nigel Farage, the Cicero of the working man, uh, when Nigel Farage said uh, he'd rather be poorer than have more immigration. Mm, mm, That's a turning point in the, in, in the classical liberal Thatcherite thinking, when yeah. people say, I would actually, uh, we were more fixed in our human relations. Uh, and I didn't have so much money. That, that's quite a change in attitudes towards the free market. Yes, uh, basically, you know, a nation is not just an economy. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. On the sort of, uh, to take one example uh, about the, the change of tradition, whilst the thing stays the same, but the change. Mm -hmm. uh, I was thinking of, because uh, you actually go through in the book, you, you do relate it to the uh, human life, don't you? You sort of relate yes. birth, death, yeah. marriage. And, um, one thing that particularly bugs me, I, I guess, uh, is um, the change in funeral rituals. Right. Uh, now, yeah. I say this as somebody who's not even religious. Yeah. But I cannot bear, yes. you know, the way in which it has been stripped of context yes. now. And it makes me almost high church, high everything. Yeah. You know, that something, it's now about the sort of odd celebration of life where yes. actual mourning isn't even kind of allowed almost. Yeah. Would you agree with that? I absolutely agree. This is the consumerization mm. of death, whereby the church, having lost courage in its own beliefs, says to the individual, their family, it's over to you. You tell mm. us what you want. And when you give people that vast amount of freedom, well, first of all, they don't necessarily, this is going to sound terrible, but they don't necessarily know what they want. Mm. They don't know what they want because death is extraordinary emotional trauma. Mm. And at that moment, you're not necessarily in the best position to say what it is you want. You, mm. You're just not. I, I know when I've lost people, I'm just a physical emotional wreck. I'm not mm. in a position to design a funeral. Uh, so instead, you hand it over to people. And in theory, they can choose anything they want. Yeah. But I've noticed from the funerals I've been to, they all choose the same thing. And God bless them. What is it they do? They reach back to the tradition of their childhood. They say, I want uh, all things bright and beautiful. It's a great hymn, but literally everyone chooses it. They all want, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death because it's the, the psalm there. Mm. It's, it's entirely understandable. These are, these are great things because they are chicken soup for the soul. They speak to us, but the church could have organized that for you instead. And then finally, you get this uh, phenomenon of, of, as you say, the celebration of life. And again, I, look, look, each to their own. Sometimes that is literally what someone wanted. But in many occasions, actually, what a funeral needs to be and what it has over thousands of years evolved into until now was a, a marking of death. Hmm. It's an op it, it, is, it is a moment uh, to get things off your chest, to cry and to weep and to throw yourself at the coffin. You don't necessarily want bright jumpers and bright music. And the, the lack of the ability of the institution, see the traditions remain strong, but institutions have weakened. The traditions yes. never die because they're a spirit. But the institutions, many of them are caved in. The inability of the institution to to give people what they need, not necessarily what they want, but what they need and the courage to show the leadership to tell them what they need, that's what's gone. And I, I think that's very sad. And just to throw in one, one final point, old fashioned funerals uh, were egalitarian. Everyone got mm. the same thing. Today, mm. if you're a pauper 
oh, he just had no friends. You'll get a, you'll get a rubbish funeral. Mm. You'll get a 10 minute funeral down the local creme by a priest who'll pretend they know you. Mm. And it's awful. Mm. If you're rich and famous, you get a fantastic funeral mm. and, and people will come and sing and people will wear your football sweater and things like that. And it's a great big party and all this sort of thing. The egalitarian nature of, of death has gone as well. Yeah, a very good point. That was the matter, again, one sort of like making a rob for one's own back here, I think. But the, that's, that was also the ruling ethos behind formality, actually, yes. in a way. Yes. Know, or courtesy. It's just sort of what yes. irons things out. But I think uh, it was interesting. We had... Um, uh, he did an interview recently with Colin Brazier, you know, he's on GB News now, but uh, he's a very um, devout Catholic. Uh, his wife died and he said to people, uh, he wrote about it, I think, in the, in the Telegraph, I think, um, please wear black. Yeah. yeah. I don't want coloured clothes. And yeah. if you're going to, if, we, if you want me you know, to have like angels by Robbie Williams or whatever it is, <laughs> and the fact is that there will be children there. Yeah. Uh, who won't understand why this sort of thing is being done. Yes. Um, so please stick to the traditional routine. Yeah. And, and I thought that that was, that was completely logical. I can see you doing, doing yes. that myself. You know? Yeah. That point about formality, uh, if everyone knows what they should wear, mm. then no one will make a mistake. Mm. Language as well. Again, yes. I, I mentioned at the very beginning, social knowledge, language of knowing what to say, of how to give commiserations, etc., etc. It applies in other departments as well. People are pushing all the time for Parliament to lose its formality and to lose its customs and rituals. The consequence will be that you'll have a divide between Tory MPs who'll turn up wearing bow ties and three-piece suits um, and SNP MPs, it's always the SNP, who'll be in jeans and a t-shirt. So mm -hmm. first of all, it'll create an extraordinary immediate divide between people. But also if you lose the parliamentary language, we'll just be rude. Yes, we'll yes. just insult each other and call each other lying yeah. pigs and things like that. <laughs> so. The, the, these rules, which again, because they're inherited, they look fusty and people say, why are we bothering around? Why can't we just be human and express ourselves as we really are? Well, part, sometimes because we don't have the facility of expression. Mm. I know that I don't always have it. And if I got married, if I had a baby, if someone died, I welcome someone giving me a script effectively and saying, look, mate, this has been written by poets over thousands of years. Yes, this exactly. is the thing to say. Yes, no, it's, I, I, I agree with that. Whatever happened to tradition, uh, what, why did you feel you had to write it, Tim, now? I mean, why personally did you want to write this? I, I personally wanted to do it because a publisher very sweetly wrote to me and said, if you could write any book, what would it be? And this was for the one which I had been thinking about for years, partly because I became a Catholic. I, I've, yes. I have joined someone else's tradition and I've, I spent a lot of time thinking about this subject. But why now Brexit and Trump? I, I was a journalist. I covered those two things. Because you actually specialise in, sorry, in American history and politics, yes, don't you? Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's my background is American history. So I covered Trump, um, particularly in 2016. And I felt very strongly that although, those, although those, both those elections were about the EU and were about Trump, they were also about something bigger and deeper, which I, I think is the search for identity. Um, and I, I thought their slogans gave it away. Uh, take back control. It implies control has been lost. We once had it. We want it back again. Trump was make America great again. Again, mm. the implication America was great. Mm -hmm. Can we bring that back? Mm. So although not everyone feels like that in the population, a significant number of people are clearly hankering for a past. Mm. And in many cases, it's a past they never even knew.
Mm. It's so st- people have this weird idea that uh, Brexit is about reviving the British Empire. It's not. Uh, most of the people there who are for it, their cultural sympathy is probably for the post-war era. It's probably actually that little period of sort of Macmillan and Harold Wilson kind of uh, buscalatism. That's what they really want to go back to. And for many of them, it's not something they even remember because it came before them. Yes, I, I, it's, it's, it's so right. And it was one, I have to say, as someone who's very involved in the Brexit campaign, campaign at the time, it was one charge. It was just simply factually wrong. I, oh, I yeah. almost never came across anyone who went on about the empire. No. But the Second World War, yes. Absolutely, the Second yes. World War yes. and Churchill in the aftermath, yeah. Spitfires, Battle of Britain, that. But the Imperial, yeah. India, all of that didn't really register. No, no. And, and why not mm. hark back to the Second World War? It's one of the best things we ever did. Mm. People, uh, there's another point I make in the book, when people talk about nostalgia, they edit. People aren't nostalgic for a Britain that owned plantations and owned people. That would be mad. That would be mm. psychopathic. Mm. They're not. Mm. They're nostalgic for a Britain that beat Hitler, a fascist. Mm. So I find it very yes. strange that when there's this nostalgic discourse, people don't have this ability to actually hear what it is that people are nostalgic about. And, it, and the same goes with tradition. What is it that people want to revive? They don't want to revive the nasty bits. Of course they don't. That would mm. be mad. Mm. They want to revive what they suspect has been lost that was good in those traditions. Isa, I you go into nostalgia because it's a very big part of tradition, isn't yeah. it? Nostalgia. What is it that there's the definition of nostalgia? Can you remember? It's got a very, it's an interesting definition. Oh gosh, nostos. We'll have to look it up. We'll later. Have to, well, I don't <laughs> want to put it on. I can't remember everything. But it's very, very interesting. But, but crucially, when, 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 the, when the term, the, the term really emerges in the 17th and 18th centuries, that's the first time that it's diagnosed medically. And it's regarded as a medical problem. Right. Um, and it's treated in some countries as a medical problem. Um, soldiers suffer from it in particular, and the British Army would send people on leave, give them compassionate leave because they're suffering from nostalgia. The Russian army, by contrast, came up with uh, the method of threatening to bury them alive. And they found that cured it very, very quickly. So it was, it was recognized right until the 19th century as a serious physical and emotional problem. And crucially, the term encompasses both um, missing a time and missing a place. Oh, right. So uh, when, it's, when, the, when it's first diagnosed, those two things are interlinked. Um, and I think that's, it's, it's, over time it became more associated with time, but also it's nostalgia and homesickness, the, the line between them initially was very thin. It's, it's uh, considered, isn't it, broadly speaking, would you say the dominant cultural attitude is that it's not a good thing, I yeah. mean, to be nostalgic. And, Definitely, yes. Uh, and, again, know, and, and again, that was planted in our culture in the 18th and 19th centuries because it was recognized that this new thing they had discovered was bad for us because it would hold us back from adaptation and progress. Right. And particularly when you run an empire or when you're the United States and you need migrant labor or you need people to go out across the prairies and create farms, you don't want homesickness and nostalgia. Mm. So the culture actively, consciously pushes back against something that it knows is natural and innate. And in the 19th century in the West, you begin to get this idea that civilization is the conquest of nostalgia, that actually you can prove that you're better than Native Americans or mm. black people because mm. you're white and you're mm. not nostalgic. Mm. And that, that's really something that Americans in the mid 19th century are talking about. That these Native Americans who refuse to leave their land, what's yes. wrong with them? We've come from Europe. So it's, it, it, it's something that we, we go to war with. It's not yeah. just lost. It's something we try to conquer. Uh, d- this idea of being nostalgic for a time you didn't know, mm. um, which is not therefore just homesickness or, um, or about your aging mm. or anything. I think that's fascinating because we went through a period, 
I'd say it's the 1980s, where it became, we had a cultural moment mm. of extraordinary, extraordinary nostalgia. You know, the whole, I remember talking to Dominic Sandbrook about this, the whole sort of Slam Ranger thing, the Country House Ball came back. Yes, uh, Brighthead was on the telly. Brighthead, yes. Chariots of Fire. Yeah. You know, it, this was all, I mean, I remember loving all of this and I couldn't have, I wasn't even alive. You know, yeah, actually. exactly. It's yes. Extraordinary, but it's, I think, you know, one dressed it up as being just aesthetically so pleasing. You know, that was, that was, that was the reason I, I, I used for myself. But, yeah, uh, yeah. You mentioned there that you converted to you've converted to Catholicism but you were uh, originally a Marxist were you not is that yes, right yes so yes. so when you was in so far as I understood what Marxism was but I, I mean were you Marxist. an active Marxist <laughs> I mean this, are you talking about university now or what yeah no I, I from an adolescent until university until about the end of my BA yes I would say I, I would regarded myself as a socialist and uh, socialist. a revolutionary but there was no revolution happening at the time had there been one trust me I'd have been at the barricades doing it right <laughs> but so that's quite a is, do you see any consistencies between that in terms of, in terms of the tradition? I mean, because Marxism is a European tradition, actually. Oh, yeah, no, no, and I say that in the book, and, and that's important. And people, uh, there, there's been a, an attempt intellectually to write Marxism off as not part of the West, as, mm. and, and some irrational, almost like a, almost like a cult. Mm. No, 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 that's not true. It is, it is Western. Um, it is part of our traditions, and itself has a tradition. It develops one. And actually, uh, there are points of similarity between Catholicism and Marxism. And it, it was often joked in, in Italy, in the post-war eras, it was often joked that, um, that the best communists were Catholics, mm. uh, partly because they understand organization and they do as they're told. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're into theory, but they're also into organization. And you have democratic centralism and the idea that you, you thrash it out internally. But once a party line has been adopted, yes. you follow it. So I think it's no coincidence that Italy is both a very Catholic country and probably the most popularly communist democratic country yes, in West Europe at yes. the time. Um, it does sometimes seem now, as I you know, started off by saying, that you know, if, if one really believes strongly in tradition, uh, you know, uh, we're, we've been talking about uh, slightly deeper themes, but I mean, oh, you know, the superficial tradition, mm. um, that somehow or other, you know, it sometimes feels that one is actually more on the kind of subversive side of things now yes um, yes and i just wonder do you think first of all that that is you know a fair uh explanation i mean do you do, do you think that people who are believing who believe in tradition are on the back foot yeah. i mean, not just being paranoid and, and also do you think that there is uh, a way in which tradition can be made healthy again yeah. can it be revived the great paradox of our modern politics is that because the institutions have been captured by the liberal left, people who once would have deferred those to those institutions and would have respected that authority are now in rebellion against it. So typically conservatives mm. like to defer. Mm. They'll defer to scientists, they'll defer to academics, they'll defer to politicians. But because each of those professions and institutions has embraced this anti-tradition vibe and have been captured by the liberal left, you, you find that the, the people those institutions are meant to save, serve, are in rebellion against those institutions. Yeah. So Brexit was the classic example. The Conservative Party didn't want to do Brexit. It was its membership that wanted Brexit. The Conservative Party held a referendum in order to settle the issue and it thought it would win and move on. 
That wasn't the plan, was to win. So it was actually the people in rebellion against the Conservative Party. Mm. You see it in the Anglican Church. You have uh, a hierarchy which is overwhelmingly liberal left. You have people in the pews who are fighting to keep their churches open. So mm. they find themselves in rebellion against. Uh, you have even medical and scientific elites who take one position and you find them, find them very often being criticized by people who in the past would have deferred to them mm. and want to defer to them. Mm. There's a conservative, I want to be able to respect uh, and take your instruction because I trust it, but because something's gone wrong with the institution, I no longer trust it. And this is the great paradox is that conservatism has become re rebellious, mm. not quite revolutionary. It's become rebellious mm. because it's in rebellion against the very institutions that conservatism exists to maintain. Conservatives should love universities. They're mm. places of higher learning. They're, oh, supposed yeah. To, yeah. they're supposed to curate our culture and our heritage. And yet conservatives are the biggest critics of universities mm. now. So, so that's the problem. Can that situation be reversed? Yes, it can. And again, another irony is that it'll be done through democratic change. And conservatives aren't supposed to like democratic change. <laughs> but it's things like Brexit. It's the people pushing back and saying, actually, I want that tradition. So I'm going to vote to make it happen. That's what will reverse it. So how would that technically come about? I mean, oh, I have absolutely we, no idea. We, well, no, <laughs> this is the thing that preoccupies people so much. I mean, I would say, uh, you know, after Brexit, and then we had the three or four years after that. Yeah. Um, I fundamentally changed my attitude to British institutions. So I would have unquestionably, I would have been devoted to, apart from the monarchy, which I think is still managed somehow, to, to hold it together mm. but all of the others I thought maybe you're not what I always traditionally thought you were yes the even, e the, even the army yes even the army <laughs> uh, so but the thing is, is where will this where will people be able to go to vote to say I want to keep that tradition this is the problem I don't it? know because there there really is no conservative party no. Um, part of the problem is that conservatives exist to protect the status quo I mean big C conservatives mm. so the conservative party will in, will protect whatever it inherits mm. and if the conservative party governs a liberal status quo mm. it will maintain a liberal status quo mm. now in the last three three or four years alone they have gone slightly more right-wing slightly mm. more pro-tradition because the people have forced them to do that mm. because of brexit that's not their natural position no. Boris Johnson is a big L liberal mm. and he would not be doing this had brexit not happened uh, so that, that's part of the problem. There isn't the political solution. I think uh, the right, as always, is split um, over whether it should try to retake the institutions by force. It needs a Potemkin moment. It needs to storm the Winter Palace and take them back. Or, as I increasingly lean towards, but I'm not quite there yet, if we should give up and just go away and do our own thing. Mm. And I'm tempted to do that. I'm tempted to think, let, uh, ultimately, if you want a tradition to flourish, live it. So if you want cricket to be as cricket always was, go and join a cricket club and do it. If you, want to, someone, if you want someone still to write good music, write the music yourself or sponsor it or play it or something like that. Right. Take it into your own hands to do it and give up on politics. And I'm increasingly tempted to take that view, uh, partly because I have found politics so frustrating and it's so hard to make any change, effective change, that I'm coming around to the view that we just need to give up. Yes, I, I don't think I'm, I'm quite <laughs> there yet. I, I hope I'm not. I mean, I, I think um, possibly one other third way is that one comes up with alternative institutions. Right, maybe. right. So right. universities, it's impossible now to really say to somebody, of course you must go to university. It's a wonderful thing. I find it very difficult now. Yes. So basically, we maybe create new universities. Yeah. That's a discussion for, well, actually, 
another time, but maybe the time is getting nearer and nearer. Uh, the book, Tim's book, Whatever Happened to Tradition? And Tim, obviously it's on Amazon, but also in bookshops, isn't it? Of oh, course. yes, it is. Yes. 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 Thank you very much for coming in and talking about it. And um, yes, I'm sure there are going to be quite a few comments after that. So we shall see you next time. And uh, in the meantime, do remember, please, to subscribe, won't you? Bye-bye.